It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I think it's maybe been about a year uh, since I've been here. I was trying to remember. I remember one time it being swelteringly hot and the door was open. I don't think it was like that last time. It's certainly not like it today. But it's really great to uh, join in the singing with you so far and now to look at God's word with you. As you can see in the order of service, we're going to be looking at a passage from Paul's letter to the Colossians. And as you will also know, Paul's letters always have a context. They're written to specific situations. And the context of the Colossians seems to be the issue that prompted Paul to write this letter is that the Colossian Christians are in danger of being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So Paul says in chapter 2. And as Paul expands on that a little later in the, le- the letter, it turns out the Colossians are surrounded by a variety of options when it comes to philosophy and empty deceit. It doesn't seem like there's just one thing that they're having to contend with. And those various options are forms of what today we might call spirituality. Plenty of people today like to refer to themselves as spiritual people. Maybe you have a colleague, maybe you have a family member who describes themselves like that. But it turns out there are an almost infinite variety of spiritualities around today. They range from the apparently sublime to the very obviously ridiculous. So I think we know what it is today to live our lives surrounded by other spiritual options. And so Paul's letter to the Colossians can help us, just as much as it helped the first readers of the letter. Paul writes here to bring clarity. He writes to define true spirituality for us in this letter. And in the part we're going to look at this morning, Paul is essentially answering the question, How important is Jesus really? He's writing to men and women who know Jesus is important. They are followers of Jesus. He's writing to the church. But these Christians live in a world that is ruled by Caesar. The power of the Roman Empire is very obvious and inescapable to them. And the Colossians also know, probably better than we know today in our society... The Colossians also know that human powers are not the whole story. They know there are other invisible powers at work in the world. And so, faced with a long list of powers, it's not surprising the Colossians might be wondering, how important is Jesus really? Where does he rank among these seen and unseen powers in the world? And today that question is just as important. Because while many spiritual people will give some acknowledgement to Jesus, you probably know very well, there's a whole lot of confusion about the actual position of Jesus. Is he one good man among many others? Is he one prophet or teacher or wise man among many others? Since the Beatles got interested in spirituality a few decades ago, there has been a long line of well-known gurus 
claiming to have some sort of key to life. Oprah Winfrey might be the most successful of the lot. Millions of people look to her for spiritual guidance. They have done for years. You might not, but many, many people do. But spiritual gurus existed long before Oprah. They existed long before the Beatles got interested in them. So the question is, where does Jesus fit into the picture? How important is Jesus really? So let's read the answer in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Speaking of Jesus Christ, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's word. And the key to understanding it is the two passages that we read earlier from the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, we're presented with the creation of the man and woman. And that is presented as the pinnacle of creation. Only human beings are described as being created in God's image. But what exactly does that mean to be in God's image? It means they were to show the world what God is like. God is invisible. Human beings were to show his character through their lives in the world. Their lives were to, in a sense, make God visible in the world. How would they do that? They would do it by ruling God's world well. Ruling it in a godly way. Showing his character through the character of their rule. In the ancient world, when a king ruled over a, a large kingdom, he couldn't be physically present in every part of his kingdom. And so he would put up an image of himself in various places. That wasn't just for fun. It was to show who was king. Now God is present everywhere. But that ancient practice helps us get to grips with what Genesis is saying. Human beings were put on earth, Genesis tells us, as God's image. To show his kingship through their godly rule of the earth. And if we pause at this point and consider what that means, it means human beings have an incredibly honored position. 
being in the image of God didn't just apply to Adam and Eve. It's an honor given to all humanity. And it's an honor that fuels a lot of spirituality in the world today. I mentioned Oprah Winfrey earlier. Oprah does not need convincing that we human beings are godly or godlike. Oprah has said, I believe in the God force that lives inside all of us. And once you tap into that, you can do anything. A lot of spirituality is based on that kind of idea. Something that's very popular at the moment is the idea of manifesting your future. I was reading a a report on Christian unions a few weeks ago, and apparently a lot of people are into this, manifesting your future. It's about getting what you desire, whether that is love or money or any number of other things. How do you get the things you desire? You signal the universe to bring your desire into reality. Can you see what a high place that gives to us as human beings? We can signal the universe to serve us, we're being told. We can signal the universe to deliver the job we want, the cash we want, or the romantic partner we want. What's going on with those ideas that are so popular? Well, they've taken a truth of Scripture, the truth that as human beings, we do have a wonderfully honored position made in God's image. A lot of spirituality takes that biblical truth and it shakes it loose from the other truth that is tied to it in Scripture. The truth that we are not God. We are made in His image, but we are not Him. He is Lord of the universe, not us. My role and your role is not to signal the universe to bring our desires into reality. Our role is to live as faithful servants of the one who rules the universe. Now with that in mind, look again how Jesus, the Son of God, is described in our passage. In verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. We're right back with the language of Genesis chapter 1. Jesus, the Son of God, is the one who reveals God. That's what Genesis 1 told us about human beings. So we have to ask, are we being told here that Jesus is just like us and we're just like him? Not quite. Verse 15 goes on to say, The Son is the firstborn of all creation, or the firstborn over all creation. If we stopped reading there, we might think the Son was the first to be created by God. But when we read on, we immediately realize that is not what's being said. Verse 16 says, For by Him all things were created. So clearly the Son is not part of creation. If the Son cooperated with the Father in the work of creation, then he's not part of creation. So what does Paul mean then when he calls him the firstborn? If it's not a reference to the Son of God being created, what is it about? 
Well, in the ancient world, the title of firstborn was about position. It was about status. The firstborn had a special place. The first place. The firstborn had the supremacy. Supremacy when it came to ownership and rule and honor. In the Old Testament, I'm sure you know, Jacob and Esau were two brothers. And they fought for the status of firstborn. Esau was actually born first, but Jacob ended up with the status of firstborn. The same thing happened a little later with Joseph's sons. Manasseh was born first, but the status of firstborn went to his brother Ephraim. You might remember that Jacob actually crossed his hands on purpose to give Ephraim that status. And here too, giving the Son of God the title of firstborn is not telling us he had a beginning. It is making a statement about his status. And his status could not be greater. He is firstborn of or over all creation. So Jesus is not just another Adam. What was true in a certain sense of Adam is true in a supreme sense of Jesus. Adam was made in God's image, but there were big limitations to how fully Adam could reveal God and display God. There are no limitations to Jesus' revelation of God. He is the perfect revealer of God. In Jesus, the Son, the character and power of the Father are fully seen. And if we ask why that is, it's because Adam and the whole human race were not creators. Not truly. Now there are many ways that human beings are creative. In the early chapters of Genesis we hear about human beings creating music. We hear about them creating tools. We are creative. Human art Now, human technology confirms we are made in the image of God, the creator. But the bottom line is, you and I can only get creative with what God has given us. Our creativity relies on the atoms and molecules that God created first. Our creativity is an imperfect revelation of God's creativity. Because he came up with his own atoms and molecules. But look here how Jesus the Son is the perfect revealer of God in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. At this point, we human beings and our creativity have been left far, far behind. We cannot compete with Jesus, the image of God. In verse 16, things visible and invisible includes all physical things and all spiritual things. Nothing is left out. All things have been created through him and for him. And so, 
you and I might buy into the idea that we can manifest our future, that we can signal the universe to make our desires happen. We might buy into that. People around us might buy into it. But sooner or later, we have to wake up to reality and we have to admit the universe does not operate at the click of my fingers or your fingers. I can try all the manifestation techniques that Oprah gives me, but they ain't going to work. The universe does not follow my signals. It does, however, follow the signals of Jesus the Son. He is the perfect image of God because he is the creator and ruler of all. Verse 17 adds the detail that he's also the sustainer of all and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus the Son was there before creation and minute by minute, if it wasn't for his sustaining work, the universe would disintegrate. Every time I brush my hair, I'm reminded I cannot successfully hold even one of my hairs together with my scalp. When a hair decides to part company with me, I can't stop it. I could get a hair transplant, I suppose, but very soon I would lose those hairs as well. I cannot hold things together in that most minor way. And I most certainly can't hold any of the major things together. But what is not true of you and me at all is true supremely of Jesus the Son. In him all things hold together. So we started with the question, how important is Jesus really? And now we have the beginning of an answer. Verses 15 to 17 have told us, Jesus the Son of God is Lord of all creation. Jesus the Son of God is Lord of all creation. That's such a simple thing to say, but it is such a life-changing truth if we come to terms with it. Do you want to have the best future? then stop living like you're God of the universe. Stop trying to bend the universe to do your will. Now, of course, you might say, well, I'm not trying to do that. Okay. But isn't it true that we sometimes live as if we are trying to do that? As we try to get control of our circumstances. Maybe get control of other people and how they live around us. You and I cannot control the number of hairs on our head. We cannot control the people and situations that impact our lives every day. And if you and I try to control those things, the effort will break us. We didn't create the universe and we cannot hold it together. Despite our best efforts, time always proves we cannot hold our looks together. We cannot hold our health together. We cannot hold our careers or our finances together. 
We cannot even hold our dearest relationships together. There's no signal I can send to the universe that ensures my loved ones are always going to be healthy and strong. There's nothing I can do that assures they will always be with me. Now that doesn't mean our daily decisions are meaningless. Of course not. You and I can do things that are better or we can do things that are worse. We can do things that are wiser or more foolish. But in the end, you and I can hold nothing together. And so the very wisest thing we can do is to humble ourselves and worship the one who is actually God of the universe. I don't really know you. Maybe, though, you need to be reminded of that this morning. Maybe you've been breathing in some of the modern spirituality that says you can do anything you put your mind to. You can build your perfect future. That is a lie. And it's not a harmless lie. It's a lie that will break you. Let it go. And put your trust again in the one who holds the universe in his hands. The one who holds your future in his hands. Second half of this passage has more to tell us about Jesus. Verses 18 to 20 tell us Jesus, the Son of God, is also Lord of the new creation. Jesus, the Son of God, is also Lord of the new creation. The background to this part of the passage is the second passage we read earlier from Genesis chapter 3. We were uh, told in the earlier part of Genesis before the reading that the first man and woman, made in the image of God, fell into the trap we've just been talking about. They fell into the trap of believing they were God. That they could bend the universe to their will. Genesis tells us living by that lie broke them. And it's been breaking humanity ever since. There's no place in God's presence for human beings who think they're God. And so the man and woman in Genesis 3 were banished from God's presence. And outside of his presence... Things do not go well. By creating them in his image, God had given human beings an incredibly honored and blessed position. We've seen that. But when they reached for more, when they grasped after the ultimate position, they fell. They fell far and they fell hard. Genesis tells us they fell back to the dust God had made them from in the first place. Death became the ultimate reminder that we are not God. Death became the ultimate frustration to all of our attempts to bend the universe to our will. Human history is full of ambitious people who wanted to rule the world. Alexander the Great, Hitler... History is also full of created people, creative people, who wanted to transform the world. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, 
he said that he wanted to leave a ding in the universe. Transform the world a little bit. But the problem for ambitious people and creative people always is, death frustrates our ambitions and our creativity. You and I can aim as high as we like, but we're all returning to the dust. That has been the reality for us since Genesis chapter 3. Death is the ultimate reminder, we are not God. And that is the background to what we read in the second half of our passage. Look at verse 18. Jesus the Son is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. The key phrase there is that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. We heard in verses 15 to 17, He is Lord of all creation. He is over all creation. But He did not stand aloof from creation. Jesus came and joined us in the dust. He was born as a baby, true human being, and then Jesus died with us in the dust. He surrendered to an unjust death on a cross. He was laid lifeless in a tomb, apparently to return to dust like the rest of us. But as you know, that's not what happened. He rose from the dust to new eternal life. Those are the central truths of Christianity. And here, we're told the significance of those truths. The resurrection of Jesus the Son was not just an awesome miracle. It was the beginning of a new creation. It began the restoration of all that humanity lost. By trying to be God ourselves. Jesus' resurrection from the dust means that we are not forever condemned to the dust. In verse 15 we saw the Son was described as firstborn over all creation. Here in verse 18, he is firstborn from the dead. Firstborn doesn't just mean he came first. Again, it is about status. The son rules the new creation that began with his resurrection. And that explains the beginning of verse 18, which mentions the church. In the New Testament, as you know, the church is not a building made of bricks. It's a building made of living stones. Men, women, and children whose lives have been made new by Jesus Christ. The church is the beachhead of God's new creation. The church is where the new creation can be seen today. Amidst all the brokenness in the world, the new creation breaks through in the church. The new creation is displayed in the church, in lives that are changed, in attitudes that are changed, in relationships that are changed. The church is made up of those who belong to Jesus, who put their faith in his death for them. And verse 18 says, Jesus the Son is the head of the body, the church. 
The New Testament often refers to the church as a body, meaning it's made up of many different members, all of them important, all of them with a part to play, just like in a human body. It's a wonderful truth. But here in our passage, by pointing to Jesus as the head, what we're being shown is, just as you and I need to know we can't bend the universe to our will, we're not Lord of creation. Equally here, we need to know we cannot bend the church to our will either. We are not Lord of the new creation. We're all privileged to belong to the church. We're privileged to have a part to play in the church. But we do not rule the church. Whether we're church members or church leaders, the church is not ours to try and mold to our will. We don't get to decide the message of the church or the priorities of the church. Jesus the Son decides. He is head of the church. He is Lord of the new creation. And notice how comprehensive the end of verse 18 is. All of this is so that in everything, Jesus the Son might be preeminent. Or another translation says, he might have the supremacy. In everything, both in creation, which we heard about in verses 15 to 17, and in the new creation, which these verses are about. Jesus is Lord of it all. He is head of it all. He has supremacy over it all. There are no departments in the universe where authority is parceled out between different lords. And there are no departments in the church where we are lords over some of it and Jesus gets to set the agenda for the rest of it. No, he has the supremacy in everything. And so our attitude to church decisions must not be, how can I get what I want? Our attitude must be, what does Jesus want? And how can I get with Jesus' agenda? Instead of trying to push my own agenda. In creation and the new creation, in life out there, And life in here, Jesus the Son is Lord. Out there and in here, we're always going to break ourselves if we try to resist that reality. This month in Pelsol, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary as a church. And as we as a church think about that, We need to be praying that all of our talking and all of our planning for the future will be about what Jesus our Lord wants and how we can best serve him rather than about what we want and how we can best serve ourselves. And I would suggest that the same applies to your own thinking and planning here in Sully Hall. It has to be done in conscious submission to Jesus the Lord. Always. Verse 18 told us the church is the beachhead of the new creation. 
It's where the first signs of his new creation are seen. But his new creation has a wider reach than just the church. In the end, it will have the widest possible reach. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In verse 19, to say God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus the Son, that means God the Father does not work through many lords, they each display something of God. No, the Father has chosen only one Lord. And that Lord displays all the fullness of God. John Calvin puts it like this. It is the determination of God not to communicate himself or his gifts to us otherwise than by his Son. It is the determination of God not to communicate himself or his gifts to us otherwise than by his Son. In other words, we cannot find God by piecing together a bit of divine light from this source and a bit from another source. No, we find God in one place. Jesus the Son. It is only through Jesus that we receive God and his gifts. And verse 20 tells us, the great gift given through Jesus is reconciliation. Genesis 3 told us about the dislocation and the alienation that came from human rebellion. Our problems as human beings do not ultimately come from poor education. They do not ultimately come from deficient health care. Or bad governments. The source of our problems is the fact that we are alienated from God. We need to be reconciled to him. And that can only happen through Jesus. The end of verse 20 tells us he made peace through his blood shed on the cross. The shedding of blood is a reference to violent death. But how could Jesus make peace between us and God? The answer is, Jesus is in a unique position. He's in an utterly unique position. Because only Jesus stands on the side of the Creator as well as on the side of creation. Jesus is God the Son. He is fully with His Father. They are one in purpose, power, and will. And Jesus is a man. He's with us too. He can offer a sacrifice on our behalf. But unlike any of us, he can offer a perfect spotless sacrifice. Jesus stands on the side of the creator as well as on the side of creation. Only Jesus can reconcile God and humanity. And he did that on the cross. His sacrifice for us made peace. New creation comes through the reconciliation Jesus brought about on the cross. And today, of course, we've said that new creation can be seen in the church. It can be seen in you. 
It's incredible how lives are changed today by Jesus. But verse 20 says, that's only the beginning. New creation will reach to all things on heaven and in earth. We read in Genesis chapter 3 how our attempt to be God didn't just break us, it broke the whole creation. The fruitful earth became the earth that resisted us. We have to fight the earth to get our food from it. It takes painful toil for the human race to eat. And many of them barely do eat. And any hints of fruitfulness that we see in this world are only hints. You and I, if we think about it, we have barely any idea what a truly fruitful earth will be like. The beauty we see in this world, and there's lots of it, but the beauty that we see is just the barest hint of the beauty that will be. In a world that is set free from its bondage to decay. But if you and I belong to Jesus, we will see and we will experience that perfect beauty and perfect fruitfulness. What verse 20 is telling us is that Jesus, the Lord of the new creation, is still Lord of all creation. He will restore not just the hearts and the bodies of his people, he will restore this earth as well. And we will finally get to fulfill the role human beings were given at the first creation. To be stewards of God's creation. Our destiny as God's people is not to be magicked away to spend eternity in the clouds. The Bible tells us our destiny is life in a new, perfected creation. That's the destiny of all those who trust in Jesus. It is a destiny paid for through His blood shed on the cross. How important is Jesus really? He is all important. And unlike so many people we consider to be important... Jesus does not hide himself away from us. He doesn't hold himself aloof from us as so many important people tend to do. No, Jesus has not kept his distance. He's not keeping his distance today. If you are a Christian, he is the Lord who invites you to know him more. And if you are not yet a Christian... There's nothing bigger, there's nothing more important for you to consider than this. Don't waste your life trying to bend the universe to fit in with your plans. Come to Jesus. Ask Him to forgive your rebellion and your sin. Ask Him to reconcile you to His Father. Ask Him to fulfill all of His plans for your life. Ask him and he will do it.